Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In each episode, we bring you new ideas and insights from some of the greatest business and thought leaders to help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can be a great leader too. Here again is your host, best-selling author, speaker, and unconsultant, Bryce Hoffman. Hello, my guest today is Zia Zaman. Zia is an expert on innovation and inclusion, currently the CEO of the new insure tech firm Soteria. He previously served as the CIO for MetLife, CEO of Lumen Labs, CSO for Singtel and LG Electronics North America, and head of the North American Strategy Consulting Practice at Gardner. Zia is a First Move Fellow at the Aspen Institute, and he holds an MBA from Stanford, as well as a master's and bachelor's from MIT. Zia lives in Singapore, but as you will hear, he is a proud Canadian. Zia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryce. So you have a lot of areas of talent, a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. One that really interests me is the idea of how to make better decisions in times of high risk and high ambiguity, which obviously most of us as leaders are operating in today. Yeah, that's right. I think that the amount of uncertainty that's affecting our world is uh, only increasing. And sometimes when people say that this really applies in dynamic industries, I ask myself, what's not a dynamic industry today? Everyone's (laughs) affected. Yeah, I mean, even if you're a small retailer today, you're impacted by global supply chain disruptions. If you're a, a taxi driver, you're impacted by Uber. I mean, there's there's really nothing that isn't impacted by volatility, uncertainty, and ambiguity today. Yeah, and every job function has turned into more of a data-driven function, right? So marketers used to be a lot more about uh, ads and pitchmen, but now you have to be a far more data-driven marketer. I think in general, you need to learn how to connect the dots and link the various examples that are out there in other fields to the experiences in, in your like sort of everyday management lives. And so I, I think it's always fascinating to listen broadly for examples of how maybe math or decision-making or data are used elsewhere and say, hey, how might that apply to things in my current field and or even in my everyday life? Well, that's so interesting. And I know that one of the things that you and I've talked about is using math and mathematics to make better decisions. Now, you're a Canadian originally, and that means you like hockey. Of course. Hockey is life. (laughs) So I understand that you have developed some really interesting mathematical insights into making decisions based on hockey, your experience with a billion-dollar hedge fund, and Malcolm Gladwell. Tell me about that. Thanks, Bryce. It's going to be uh, it's going to be fun to uh, to piece those together. So, and it also applies, frankly, to what's going on right now with the vaccine. So maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Awesome. Let me take you all the way back, Bryce. So you, you talked about um, you know being from Canada. I'm from uh, Montreal, and Montreal has 23 or 24 Stanley Cups. The Montreal Canadiens, that is, and grew up with that. And watching hockey uh, a lot when I was young. And I moved to Boston to go to MIT when I was 17 years old. And I got there and I thought, well, I'm obviously not going to give up on watching hockey. Boston's a great hockey town. And over the time that I was spending at MIT, I was doing a lot of work on probability theory that ended up being sort of the core of my my major in, uh, in course six. And over the 
winters, what they used to do is get a bunch of people in in January and say, all right, we're not going to give you courses, but you can start to study and think about problems that are interesting to you. So some of us would do you know, activities. Uh, and I got into, I guess, sabermetrics, which is the precursor to Moneyball. And rather than just talking about baseball, we also talked about other sports as well. I remember one particular um, presenter tried to make the case that a triple was worth more than a home run. And we all laughed and laughed and laughed and thought, how can a triple generate more runs for your team than a home run? And he said, it keeps the rally going. And at that point, I thought, that's funny. I also heard during that time about this problem in hockey that was uh, potentially considered from a mathematical point of view. And the question, and I'll set it up right now, is around at what time before the end of the game do you pull the goalie if you're losing by one goal? You're going to lose the game anyway, right? And uh, if you don't score. Now, what does that mean to pull the goalie for those of us who don't know hockey? So this is how hockey is played, right? So there's five skaters and a goalie. And they try to score, of course, on the opposing goalie's net. And at some point towards the end of the game, it's a 60-minute game. uh, Let's say you're losing 3-2. The coach might say, I'm never going to score that third goal. I need some help. What if I took that goalie out who's not helping with my offense and replaced him with a additional skater, meaning there would be six players that would be trying to attack the opposing goal, and our net would be empty. We would have pulled the goalie in favor of an extra attacker. Now, the fun so thing- So it's a very is, risky move. Then. Very risky move. The fun thing is the fans love it sometimes, right? Yeah. And, and because it adds to the excitement. Let's talk about the numbers, right? So it's risky because you can get scored on maybe by a factor of five times more likely to be scored on. Why? Because 100 feet away, you've got this empty net and NHL players are pretty good at shooting the puck into an empty net. On the other hand, when you actually have six skaters versus five, as you can imagine, your probability of scoring goes up by, I think it was a factor of 2.7. So it's meaningful. It's not just 27% higher chance of scoring. It's two times as great. And therefore, what happens is the game gets very exciting. You're on the edge of your seat and there's not much time left. And you feel like this is a roll of the dice to try to salvage what seems like a little bit of a desperate situation. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And uh, so, you know, telling you the punchline uh, before we get there, there are all, all kinds of situations in life that are pull the goalie situations, Bryce. We find ourselves in these positions over and over again. So the prevailing logic was a minute before the end of a game, you pull the goalie. And somebody wrote a paper that said, no, it should be a little bit longer. And uh, I read this while I was at MIT and I thought, I don't really believe that. I know hockey better than they do. I read the math and it was based on this Poisson model. And Poisson is a pretty good hockey name, right? It's French, et cetera. And the the Poisson mathematics, um, which you may remember from your statistics class is the idea that the London bus is the best example. The, the arrival time of the next London bus does not depend on the arrival time of the previous London bus, meaning that the, uh, they're, they're interdependent. The arrival of a random event is not related to the previous one. And you might say London buses are on schedule, but of course, famously, there is such traffic such that there is no arrival time pattern. And that kind of statistical way of looking at ice hockey and goals arriving at a game was one way of thinking about how to build a model. 
And it's a pretty good way for a lot of things out there to say, when's the bus going to come, et cetera. And I, I was taking an, a course called Urban OR. Um, and uh, Urban OR at MIT was about doing just that, figuring out where to place the police station or how to you know, schedule nurses, et cetera. And so I thought about it and said, look, hockey's not like that. Hockey is about ebbs and flows, right? The beauty of hockey is that you're moving your head left and right and watching the puck and the game changes. It's got state. That's an important word. What does that mean? That means that you have to know the context of a game, right? Everybody knows in American football or football that the game, the first thing you ask is who's got the ball? Where is the ball? What's the down? How many to go? And then of course, what's the score? There is a state to an American football game. There is state, especially in baseball. You need to know how many, you know, exactly runners on base, how many outs. In basketball and hockey, it's a lot more fluid. Um, and, and of course, soccer the most. So in hockey, I said, look, don't use a Poisson model. And there's another mathematician that has a different type of model. And, and wait for it, Bryce, because it's just as equally good a hockey name. In fact, it might even be better. It's a Markov model, M-A-R-K-O-B. <laughs> so we've gone from somewhere in Quebec to somewhere in Russia. And uh, Markov was a, a great mathematician. And amongst all the things that he did is he created a Markov chain. A Markov chain is sometimes called a birth and death chain. But basically, it tracks any system as it moves kind of left to right from one end to the other. And hockey's exactly that. The puck can move through the zones from the center ice zone, the neutral zone, into the attacking zone, into a zone where the player is just about to take a shot, and into the net. So that gives you, naturally, if you can visualize it, seven different states, seven different contexts about where the puck is. And depending on that, you can imagine the chances or the probability that you're going to score or be scored upon changes. Based on where the puck is, which of those zones it's in. Poisson doesn't do that. Markov does. And so I pitched this idea to, to I don't remember where, and, and said, look, I'm going to write a paper about this. And uh, worked on this uh, using some archaic old computers and took some data and uh, wrote a paper that basically says, you got to know where the puck is. And if you use this Markov model based on NHL data from, I think it was 2000, here's the result. And lo and behold, the way you solve for this problem is as follows. And this is, again, just a tiny bit more mathematical. So uh, uh, let's just talk about it for a second. Does that make sense, Bryce? Yep. Here's how you solve the problem. And this is actually a good lesson for how you can solve many problems, which is to find the indifference point. The indifference point is the point at which making decision A or decision B is equally good, meaning the probability of your benefit category for A, expected value of it, is equal to the expected value of the benefit for the choice B. And so what we're doing is that we're going from the end of the hockey game and saying, you know, 10 seconds before the end of the hockey game, does it make sense to pull the goalie? Well, probably yes, under all circumstances, because guess what? You're going to lose the game anyway in the next 10 seconds. You better have the goalie out because the probability of you getting a point from the hockey game from a draw, from a tie, is actually higher when you pull the goalie. Now, is that apply at 20 seconds? Yes, probably still does. But at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, keep going until the probability or of the expected value of points that you get from that game, 
Remember, you're losing 3-2. It's equivalent whether or not you pull the goalie or not. That's the indifference point. That is where the two curves intersect. How interesting. So we can use that method for a variety of different things. And I'll talk a little bit about them um, in, in the future. But the end of a hockey game for me back in 2001, when I published the paper, didn't say a minute before the end of the game, because that was actually uh, too late. And intuitively, that makes a lot of sense. Um, because if you remember those numbers I talked about, it probably doesn't give you enough time. The answer was five minutes. A little more than wow. five minutes before the end of a game, you got to pull the goalie. So I published this paper in a, in a magazine called Chance, and it's a peer-reviewed paper. Uh, it's well known for you know everyday problems in math. Uh, it is technical, but I was thrilled at a fairly young age to be uh, published in a, in a journal and about something I love, which is hockey. So five minutes is a lot of time to be out there with your goal unprotected, and yet the numbers show that that's the best choice. Here's the beauty of the Markov model. Let's say the puck goes back into your defensive zone and then you have a defensive faceoff. Common sense is you put the goalie back in because the puck stopped, the goalie can go back in. In fact, indeed, that is the beauty of it because you can go back and put the goalie back in as well. So it does make sense wow. to uh, pull it early. And then depending on the state of the game, you can, uh, you can change your decision. And uh, a preview towards the answer at, at, at the end is, the opportunity to actually put your goalie back in at a face-off actually happens very regularly every minute. And so that is really interesting. The opportunity to pull your goalie happens every minute. And that's really interesting. So there's a lot of opportunities to have an intervention in this decision as you're going forward. It reminds me of something that I find very powerful, which is this idea from Dave Snowden, who has been a previous guest on the show, about when you're dealing with complex problems, the appropriate action is to test, sense, and react, to probe, sense, and react, depending on how you put it, which is kind of like making these, these bets, seeing if they pay off, retreating if necessary, but if it's working, doubling down. And it seems very similar to what you're talking about. Absolutely. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring in another a very famous Canadian, another Canadian, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, in a second. But before I do that, I'm going to bring up two other uh, names. One is Patrick Roy, a very famous goalie for the Montreal Canadiens and who was a coach for the Colorado Avalanche. And, and the other is Victor Tikhanov. So let's start with let's start with Patrick. Right. So Patrick Roy probably read my paper and a variety of other people's papers and started pulling the goalie five minutes before the end of the game when he was coach of the Colorado Avalanche. And because he's a legend, people are like, well, you know what? He, you know, he probably knows something we don't know. And there was, you know, the money ball was happening. So people started to think about analytics a bit more in sports. And sometimes it worked. So that started to get coaches thinking this is a real thing. The reason I want to talk about Tikhanov is because we actually label the strategy of never pulling your goalie, the Tikhanov model. You want to know why? Because he never pulled his goalie. He never pulled his goalie. Victor Tikhanov was the famous coach of the Soviet Red Army team. And in the 70s, um, North American and ice hockey basically had their eyes opened uh, to the way in which the Soviets played the sport. And uh, in the course of 1972, there was a great series between Canada and, and, and the Soviets. And uh, Victor Tikhanov was the coach. He had a few things that were unique about him. The first being that he stood in front of the players so he could get a better view of the ice. So they had to avoid him as they jumped on the ice. And the second was that he never pulled the goalie. And 
there's two reasons why he never pulled the weight. The first was he didn't believe in the math. And maybe the second was that it's a pretty disagreeable decision. And this is Malcolm Gladwell's world. It's a dis disagreeable decision to pull the goalie because many people would say that if you are the coach, you pull it too soon, you open yourself up to criticism because if they get scored upon, the fans and the management and maybe the owner will say, Bryce, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Now, that's something that I think a lot of leaders outside of the hockey ice can relate to is that all too often in many organizations, we're making our decisions not just because they lead to the optimal outcome, but because they allow us cover in case they go wrong. Cover is a great word. And I, I want to talk about ways in which you can get cover uh, a little bit later on. So let's fast forward for a little bit. You know, that was 2001. 16 years later, right? 16 years later, I get a call from my friend uh, who's driving around uh, outside New York. And he says, I had to pull over. I had to pull over. I said, why? I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. I said, oh, okay. What was it about? He said, he stole your idea. I said, what idea? He said, pull the goalie. Cliff and Aaron were talking about pull the goalie. I said, what do you mean? He said, listen to the podcast. So I did. And uh, Bryce, you know, obviously you have this great podcast, but Malcolm had a great one too. And he brought on these two hedge fund managers who were interested in problems like these and who had solved the pull the goalie problem using a little bit more modern techniques, but basically using dynamic programming that in this, written the same way that I described earlier. What's the answer for 10 seconds before the end of the game, 20, 30, 40, 50, et cetera. And so they built the model and talked about it on Revisionist History's podcast. And they came up with the answer, five minutes. Exact same answer you did. Yeah, they did. And in the article, which I read, which did really, really well on SSRN, they were kind enough to cite my paper twice. And they said some nice things like, uh, I would love to know, like in the Zaman model, whether or not context really affects our decision. And credit to Zaman and others for the work that they've done in the past, which seems to be corroborated here by um, our data. So I, I, I know, nice tip of the hat from these guys who did the, the model. Now, Malcolm, when he did his podcast, had a different angle. He said, I want this to be about making disagreeable decisions, right? And he tried to characterize specifically Aaron as somebody who's like Spock, right? Who makes decisions that are intelligent and rational and thoughtful, independent of how other people might perceive him because it was the right thing to do. And he said that making a disagreeable decision is really tough because you don't have air cover. And sometimes the penalty, the stigma of making a bad decision is actually worse if, if you know if you have any EQ uh, than making the high IQ decision. Is that something you see, Bryce? Absolutely. Because again, people are often not making decisions focused on what is the most optimal decision to achieve the desired outcome. They're making their decisions based on what is the most optimal decision for my career. And my career is not just based on whether I succeed or fail in this decision. My career is based on internal politics. My career is based on covering my hindquarters if this decision turns out to be wrong. My career is based on a lot of other factors that may have very little to do with whether the decision I'm making is a good one or a bad one. 
Absolutely. And then that idea of what are the different ways in which you could get little bits of insight that give you cover is one of the conclusions here, right? So Malcolm has a story that brought it home for me um, that was a, a good example of a pull the goalie risk. And uh, it's kind of frightening. So, uh, you know, warning to the listeners uh, before I say it. Um, imagine that you are a woman at home alone uh, with your teenage daughter and uh, you find out that there's an intruder in your home. There's no one else there. What do you do? Do you go out and get help? And uh, Bryce, you, you can imagine, you know where, maybe where this is going, but um, if you do go out and get help, even if you think that's the right rational decision, there is a stigma in case something were to happen to your teenage daughter if you go out and when, when you leave her alone. So no mom would do that. That makes sense? Absolutely. It's a horrible choice to have to make. Exactly. And so therefore, the disagreeable decision is not socially acceptable, which is to go off and get help. But what if, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of the, the, the uh, thunder before it happens. What if you could lock your daughter in a panic room and then go out and get help? And you knew that she'd be safe for, let's say, 15 minutes, maybe 45 minutes, uh, and that'll give you plenty of time to go and get the police. Then does it become more socially acceptable? I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. So there are kinds of ways to mitigate this. And that really is the, the point around um, how uh, we need to think about this. So I thought about Aaron's paper, uh, Cliff and Aaron's paper. And I said, look, it, they're kind of inviting the question, right? Which is how does context change it? So along with uh, a, a, a young man called Hong Ming, who is a PhD candidate here at the National University of Singapore, we started thinking about the problem and wrote a model, which basically replicates, of course, the exact uh, code that Cliff and Aaron put in, in the Asnes Brown model is what I'm going to call it. And then it said, look, we're going to change this to incorporate state, to make the model stateful. And that is, again, using the idea that state matters, right? And so I modified this model with uh, Hongmei and made it stateful, right? And the, the way we did that is to basically change the math to say, look, you can pull now and act optimally, but if you get an opportunity to put the goalie back every minute, you can. And so what happens? And one of the things that we, we had to test, of course, is that our model gave exactly the same answer as the Aston's Brown model. When you, when you don't pull the goalie, and that's true, um, then when you add the state, in fact, it gave a very similar model, right? So, uh, which is uh, roughly that if you're in the neutral zone, you pull the goalie after about uh, five and a half minutes, uh, as opposed to what they came up with, which is almost six minutes. So very, very similar results. But in the offensive zone, you do it differently. And in the defensive zone, you pull it significantly uh, later. So we, we created um, this model, which is stateful, that both validated the Aston's Brown model, but modified it as well to basically say, look to see where the puck is. Which zone it's in. Which zone it's in. Now, when Aston's Brown did it, they had this idea. It was like, the, the reason that these hedge fund managers uh, like this particular problem is because of this setup, right? And so all the asset managers will appreciate this and anyone who studied option theory. Imagine that you have a call option that is well out of the money with very little time left to expiry. So you bought this option maybe a while ago 
and it was neutral or you know nearly in the money or just out of the money, right? And over time, guess what? Um, you're still out of the money. You are not about to get anything from that option, and uh, there's not much time left. Now, in the asset management space, you cannot affect the volatility or the beta of the basket of stocks or the assets for which the uh, call option is written. Right? It's it's hard to say. All right, you know, I've invested in 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 this particular option for uh, I'll, I'll use Tesla because it's a highly volatile stock. The the call price is significantly higher than where it is. You can't just go tell Elon Musk to take a lot more risk, right? And therefore give the volatility uh, a boost in that particular case. But there are cases where you can do that. But it is a very interesting problem that if you could dial up the volatility of the basket of assets. What's an example of a, of a case where you could do that? Yeah, right. So a good example might be where you, you really could have potentially a basket of assets, right? Where you're allowed to trade inside mm-hmm. that basket, right? And therefore you could basically create a more risky set. A good example would be you are an asset manager. You're managing somebody's money. They are going to fire you at the end of the year if you don't hit the, the required return. You are below that required return. You have a month left. You've been going with safe stocks. Guess what? You start to go with a little bit more higher beta stocks. You know, you've given up on alpha altogether. And therefore, you might end up salvaging the situation by creating higher volatility in your asset base. Very That's similarly- a great example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is. It's, it's, pulling the, it's, it's the investment version of pulling the goalie. How about Hollywood? I love this example too. You are a studio exec. And you've been a sort of a junior partner, studio exec, making movies under a big studio for two two years now, three years. And Bryce, guess what? The movies that you've been doing aren't aren't actually having a big big box office take. You haven't won any Oscars. It's your last project before that you know that they're going to um, no longer give you any more money to go build uh, pictures. So, what do you do? You might take a risk with a first time director. And uh, you might say, all right, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go with this first time director because it's fresh, it's new. I'm going to increase my, my riskiness of the next project that I'm going to go ahead and do. That makes sense as well. So anytime Absolutely. you find yourself in a situation where you, you, you need to do something, I'll give you one last one, which is my favorite because I've done a lot of M&A in my, my life, which is executives sometimes towards the end of their tenure tend to look for blockbuster M&A as a way to basically justify or rally the team around something big, which is high risk, which may not be in their best interest, but it is also something that potentially increases the volatility and makes sense because um, they haven't shown the TSR growth that they were expecting. So those are good examples from a management perspective. So in those examples, which are all about increasing the volatility, increasing the risk, but also increasing the potential reward. How do you apply the same mathematics that you identified in this goalie problem to those situations? I think you do very similar types of analyses, right? Which is you create a uh, state of, if I were to continue to make conservative movies, what is the potential expected box office take what is the variability based on you know the set the data set that we have and what's the range of outcomes and then you compare that to what happens when you take a first time director who might have won a uh, award by you know won an emmy before right so it's less risky right because she's won an emmy but it means that she could probably do a full length feature 
Um, or you take someone who's, you know, never directed anything longer than a, than a documentary or maybe, you know, something like that, or it's really a first time Jordan Peele type director. So you, you got to look at the various choices that you make and then pick the volatility, which is enough such that it's enough to give you a, a better outcome without taking upon too much volatility. But I want to go back to the, the, the adjustments to the Asnes Brown model, because there's two big insights that we got from the thinking of what the state allows you to do. And the first one is that insights about the state really do matter. Knowing where you are in your tenure, um, how much time is left for the expiry of the option, whether or not the puck is in your defensive zone, neutral zone, or whether you're about to take a shot. Many people who know hockey would say, depends on who's on the ice. Absolutely. You know, you have attacking players and you have defensive players that make a difference. And certain teams uh, like the Tampa Bay Lightning are far better at scoring and therefore they may not need it as much. All those insights about state really do matter. But it wouldn't be interesting if it weren't for the second point, which is these insights are fleeting. If I have one thing to say to you guys that you want to remember is this idea that indeed we have a lot of insights about the contexts that are um, definitely valuable, but you need to de-risk risky decisions with little bits of certainty. I'll say that again, de-risk risky decisions with little bits of certainty. If you know that the puck is in your offensive zone, you have some period of time when you can take advantage of that insight and take a little bit more risk. But you also need to know that over the state of a hockey game, that advantage is incredibly fleeting. In other words, the probability that the puck is in any zone after the puck has been in the offensive zone, I'll let, I'll let you guess. How many seconds does it take for, for you to have actually no information about the puck's whereabouts based on where it was before? But in an active hockey game, I'm guessing it doesn't even take a second. It's 10 seconds, right? It's that yeah. little, right? It does take a few seconds for the puck okay. to actually be you know, drawn in a face-off and then for the player to take the shot, the goalie to make the save or missing the net, and then you know, the defensive team pulls it out of that zone. But after 10 seconds, the knowledge that you had about where the puck was is gone. You have no further information about where the puck is going to be, to use the famous Wayne Gretzky quote, after 10 seconds. Insights are fleeting. Therefore, the 15 minutes in a panic room is, is, is maybe more like five. What do you do? So, But when you temporarily know that the downside risk is zero, take advantage. But know that that insight's relevance is fleeting. The half-life of perfect information is short. So seek it, look for it, but don't rely on it forever. This is so interesting because this factored into one of my favorite quotes from General Patton, who said famously that a good plan violently executed today is better than a great plan next week. And a lot of people misunderstand that quote. A lot of people look at that quote and say, oh, well, you shouldn't think you should act. That's not what he was advocating at all. What he was saying was very similar to this, which is that if you take a week to continue to perfect your plan, the situation is going to change. The insights that you have may no longer be valid. 
And your enemy is also planning, which is something that people forget. People think we make decisions in a vacuum. And so even if you've seen the way forward right now, that way may be closed by the time you exploit it. So I think this idea of recognizing the short shelf life of insights is really critical in today's rapidly changing world. That's a fantastic example. Timing is everything, right? So go back to the studio executive, right? You're about to get fired. How do you do risk risky situations? Well, you get Meryl Streep to play the lead, right? It's only a part of the story and you know it's not going to save your career, but it is a way of doing it. So I'm going to bring it back to something that's happening right now where it happened six months ago. It's not quite as current as it was a few months ago, but definitely uh, three months ago, this was relevant. And that's about the vaccine. You want to hear about this? I want to hear about the vaccine because I actually have been thinking about a very current example of vaccine I want to ask you about, but not till you share your example okay. of vaccine. This comes from Israel. So it's the idea or question about what do you do about the expiring vaccine doses? So a feature of the pull the goalie problem is that time is running out. And we saw this in Israel and in other places where we had to come up with policy to determine who gets the vaccine first. Now, the problem was, of course, that there's this cold storage chain that needs to be maintained and these vaccines expire, which is why the pill seems so much more attractive, but the vaccines definitely do expire. And there's only so much logistically that you can deliver before um, time runs out. And so what happens if the doses expire and that vaccine is unused, right? That becomes the loss of value, the loss of a public good. So they've got to pull the goalie challenge there. Now, um, so policymakers, they try to assiduously follow ethical guidelines to create a layered well, set of priorities that each group can get the vaccine in sequence. And I, I saw this chart, might've been from the UK that started with care home residents, care home workers, people aged 80, then people aged 75 to 79, people aged 70 to 74, clinically extremely vulnerable, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's all an attempt to create cover, right? To create order and to say, those who get it are one, then two, then three, then four. But sometimes the world isn't that clear. It's a lot messier. People don't show up for their, um, appointments on time and doses are going to expire, right? Um, so what did Israel do? So they took what is sometimes, you know, the Asnus Brown model, which is sort of the disagreeable decision to subvert the rules when the doses were expiring. Subvert is a pretty big word, so I don't want to say that in, in too vocally, but to change the rules when the doses were expiring. The best utilization of a public good is to not let the public goods value go to zero. You don't wanna throw away food, right? Therefore, you might wanna donate it to a shelter um, right before um, uh, the restaurant closes, for example. But the case of Israel was at 4 p.m. every day, if they had a set of vaccines that were about to expire, you know what they used to do? They used what? to go around and ask people on the street hey, have you been vaccinated yet? If you haven't, I don't really care where you fit on that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This dose is expiring in 59 minutes. Hey, pizza guy, come on in and get the dose. That's so interesting because that's exactly, I live in a, in a rural community in Northern California and we have one medical clinic here that's the only medical clinic for an hour in any direction. 
and they've done a phenomenal job of responding to COVID since day one. And one of the things that they did early on when the vaccines first became available is just what you're talking about, Zia. At the end of the day, if they had doses left, they would have a nurse drive down to the the grocery store in town and stand in the parking lot, it's a small town, and say, hey, who wants a vaccine? Follow me up the hill and lead a little car caravan up the hill and get the jabs in people so that not a single one of those doses would go to waste. That's fascinating. So I've heard that story when I repeat this over and over again in communities around the world, and there are different words for it. In Singapore here, we have something called a soaker list. And it's a list of people who said, look, if you don't know um, where to put the vaccine, call me up. Um, so there's still a problem with this, which is the empty net goal. Let's talk about what is the empty net goal. Otherwise, you could do this um, you know, at, at any time. The empty net goal is someone walks into their appointment late or arrives at the center at 4.59 p.m., right, Bryce? And they want a dose, which has already been administered to the pizza guy, right? This right. is a negative outcome, worse than the positive outcome of the pizza guy getting his vaccine. Because the person who um, should have gotten it just ended up being late. Now you might say 459, Zia, I know the story, one minute before you, you know you should have pulled the goalie. Okay, but what about 458, 457, 456, right? Where's the indifference point? At what point in the day did your nurse drive down the hill? And that's the question. You have to know when that is. And mm-hmm. you, you, you could say, look, it's after all the appointments are done, right? That's easy enough. But if you're in a 24-hour clinic, et cetera, it's a harder problem to solve. But Israel probably, because they got some of the earliest doses, was the first to say, um, this is how we're going to do it uh, with the pizza guy. And they probably set the precedent to say that this is socially acceptable because we figured out how not to do the empty net goal. Interesting. Interesting. That's such a poignant example. I want to pose another vaccine-related problem because as I was listening to you before, as I was thinking about this Asnus Brown model, I was thinking about the situation that we are dealing with here in the United States right now around mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers, for instance. So you have a situation in many areas of the United States right now where you have healthcare agencies or states mandating vaccines for doctors and nurses, which makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, we live in a time where making a lot of sense doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. And therefore, you're getting mass resignations, particularly of nurses and hospital technicians because they refuse to comply with the vaccine mandate, which then leads to those hospitals and medical facilities being significantly understaffed. How do you tackle a problem like that where once again, you find yourself on the horns of a dilemma between two really suboptimal choices? It's a really tricky one. And, um, and there are so many feedback loops in there that it becomes uh, difficult to model. The only instinct that I have, Bryce, around problems like that is an old adage from, from queuing theory, right? So these are all cues, right? You have a service provider, uh, you have a resource that's delivered and 
uh, in a way, uh, healthcare is is like the ultimate cue. And the advice that I've heard, which may apply, is sort the cues. Always sort cues. When you have sufficiently different operating parameters, sort the queue. A really good example of this is at the airport, when you have the difference between business class and economy. You sort the queue in order to provide a different level of experience by having more customer service people for the business class because that they pay more for their ticket. And then what it does is it shortens the time for them and the expectation of the economy class passengers is different and therefore they're more willing to accept that as well. You also see the other <laughs> adage, which is pool queues, which means that if you can, if you have all the servers in one uh, with one long line, you actually end up improving for everyone the uh, average wait time. But it, there's an expectation business that needs to be thought of as well. So it is about expectations, right? And therefore, if you had a population that said, we as the healthcare workers are uh, that do not want to get vaccinated are capable of being sorted out and are still able to deliver healthcare for those who are not vaccinated, then that basically creates a sorting queue situation. Now, there's all kinds of problems Interesting. with that. But what it does is it creates, unfortunately, something we already have, which is two communities. And that means that you have one group of people who are, are looking at a problem in a particular way with a different cost-benefit analysis and different assessment of risk and benefit. And therefore, they are vaccinated and go through the systems as they are, but there could be an alternative way. And there are some very other ways of thinking about this. Um, and, and here in, in, in Asia, there's different dietary requirements. And mm -hmm. uh, here in Singapore, there's this principle around halal food, which is food mm -hmm. that is kosher uh, for, for people of the Muslim faith. And, and it's very similar to, to, to kosher, but for all intents and purposes, there's a lot of people who say, I only want to eat a, a halal food. So what you can do is you can sort the restaurants and say, you know, 20% of the restaurants are choosing not to be halal. And, you know, you're going to have a different population that'll eat there. And that optimizes things for everyone. In Australia, what they decided was, we're just, it's easier and maybe even better to have everyone be, uh, uh, delivered uh, halal food because the people who don't care whether it's halal or not actually like the food just as much, right? So there's different ways of looking at it. So sorting cues yeah. is a nice way of saying um, if you have differing requirements, um, you can do that. And and in, in this particular case, you might even have the people who are delivering the value also be part of the pool, right? So, but it is, it does create two worlds. Does that make sense? Yeah. But, it, but they're, as you say, they're two worlds that exist already. They're the worlds of truth and post-truth. The, um, there's something else you brought up, Zia, that, that really got me thinking as well, which was you referenced the idea of queuing theory as it applies to first class, business class versus economy class passengers on airlines. And it's very interesting to me, at least, to look at, and maybe it's because before COVID, I spent most of my time on airplanes to look at the different ways that different airlines try to solve the problem of optimizing their investment when it comes to this multi-tiered service of moving people from point A to point B in the aluminum tube. And here in the United States, Delta Airlines did something very interesting, I thought. And they got a lot of attention for this. They got written up in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, several times about this. They, when their 
their current CEO came on, they were, I think, rated number three out of the three major carriers in terms of business airlines. And he set the goal of making them number one in business travel. And one of the big levers that he pulled to do that was to have a conversation with his leadership team that basically said, look, we're thinking about the math on this wrong. If we ask people in the back of the plane, do you care how close your seat is to the person in front of you? They will say, absolutely. If we ask the people in the back of the plane, do you care whether we give you you know, a little snack or just throw about a, a bag of pretzels at you? They will say, absolutely. But if you put two fares in front of them and one is only a few dollars more for the thing they say they want, 90% of them, 100% of the time, will choose the lower fare. And therefore, he, his, his thesis was, we should stop investing in the back of the plane. We should take all the money that we would have spent to raise everybody's level, to raise, you know, to, to, to raise the experience of all of our customers, 5%, say, and spend 90% of that in the front of the plane to raise the experience of the customers in the front of the plane, 20%. Because those customers, if they are significantly happier flying on our planes than our competitors, will come back every single week and spend more money to fly with us because of the experience they're getting. And when he did this, a lot of people said, oh, that's horrible. You can't do that, you know, because, you know, people at the back of the plane will rebel and say, you know, give us an incrementally better experience, move the seats a half an inch up or something. And he said, no, they won't. They'll say they will, but the reality is, is when they go to buy their tickets online, they're going to just go with whoever the cheapest carrier is. And within a few years of Delta implementing this change, they, I mean, it, 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 they just blew ahead of their domestic competition in the United States. They became the number one rated business airline and they just, the gap just kept widening because their first class business class experience was so much better than United or American because they were investing most of their money in those seats. And they, and not just their money, but their energy to the point that I flew so much that I was always in the front of the plane. Often on their flights, the, the captain would come out and thank everyone in business class and say, thank you guys so much. You're the ones who are keeping us in business, you know, because you're, you're devoted to this airline. You come back every single time. And I know dozens of people like me would make inconvenient choices like in my case, once flying to give a speech in Las Vegas from San Francisco, which I could have done a 45 minute direct flight on United. I flew to Los Angeles and had an hour long layover so that I could be guaranteed to be in first class on Delta. People were doing that all the time because of that investment. And that really shows that if you can understand the mathematics behind decisions like you're talking about, it can be incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's a, it's a great example um, of uh of uh, loyalty. It's a great example of uh, cost-benefit analysis um, and in the differing expectations between customer groups. And, and that's exactly what you showed, which is um, there is so much price elasticity around certain features that there is no evidence that you should be investing in um, pooling queues. I'll, I'll use the queuing theory, which is, what the, which is to create a, a minimum standard. Um, and instead, sorting queues makes a lot of sense because you can put the investment into those for whom um, the willingness to pay is, is higher. And you can engender loyalty, which is something to, uh, 
that you should also track, right? And so that is a kind of, I would call that in the bucket of decisions that you can make um, based on smart analysis for which you might have some uh, data that you need to uncover that you don't already have, but there isn't as much, I'll put it as this way as uncertainty, right? However, there are other problems for which you have um, uncertainty. And I, I'm fascinated by the public good problems because you have to figure out what is a public good? Um, what is the value of the asset? Is it perceived differently? What are the shocks to the system that are external you can't do anything about? So like I'm, I'm thinking a lot about energy transition and the costs associated with that. Um, obviously, at some point, as we want to move towards net zero, um, we, we, we got to do more around pooling energy, right? Getting it from wherever we can, right? using less of it. Of course, it's a huge part of it. Uh, looking at the existing renewable sources and investing in technology, which has not come around yet. And it's a blend of all of these. No one solution is going to get you there. But with that comes risk. And there's uncertainty with regards to, will it work? Um, will it change my business model? How quickly do I have to reduce my demand? Do I need to rethink all my processes, right? Some of the businesses that I've looked at they're using steam, Bryce, right? And so 100 years of doing something the same way because they're using what used to be the tech of the day, which was I heat up water, create steam, and that steam drives my process. Well, maybe there's a better way. So uncertainty, second set of decisions is around if you do have some uncertainty around your business, around some big theme, well, how do you model it? Uh, and, and how might you have uh, a collection of, of uh, answers that uh, give you an uh, approach to this? And that would apply to the to the airlines as, as well as to anyone who's affected by that. So I like the, the, the fact that decision-making under uncertainty and ambiguity is a field that's not just not going away, but it's just being amplified, right? Back in 1999, when we started talking about triples and home runs, it was just the beginning. Then we had Moneyball, and then you know we're doing sabermetrics in every sport. Then it's moving into, of course, the business context. And eventually, we'll start to use this to make smart policy decisions and maybe even broader global decisions like, like carbon tax or you know, what do we really want in terms of uh, a minimum living wage or even uh, how do we redistribute wealth um, and opportunity across those who are not included. So there are lots of benefits of doing this kind of analysis correctly. And uh, I, I think that the managers who, who think this isn't just something for my data and, uh, and decisions teams, this is something that I can use are the ones that are going to be able to leverage this to not just use value, not just make smart decisions, not just to get air cover, but to be really thoughtful about how ambiguity affects all of us. And uh, if you can model it, you can make some really smart decisions in context. Well, what I really like about this and what I like about this idea of trying to model this complexity Zia, is that you need models to understand this because our brains do a really poor job on their own of understanding probabilities. Yeah. And it's like the gambler's paradox is, you know, or the gambler's fallacy is one of the great cognitive mm. biases that impacts a lot more than the roulette table at Monte Carlo. But, you know, you get these situations where people think, well, you know, this has worked for the past nine times, it's guaranteed to work the 10th time. And they don't understand our brains are not wired in such a way that we readily grasp the fact that in many, many different things, many different areas, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. That the, mm. what just happened does not necessarily impact what's about to happen in the least. 
And I think that's why people who understand the mathematics behind these things, and I'm not one of them, but the people who endeavor to understand the mathematical models that explain these things can be incredibly successful decision makers, particularly in areas like investing, as you pointed out. I, I always think back to Charlie Munger gave a, a famous speech in the mid nineties. The, for those who don't know the number two uh, or, or right-hand man to uh, Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway to a, a group of college graduates where he said, you know, if you understand the Fermat Pascal system, really understand it, you've already gone a long way to being able to be an incredibly successful investor. If you understand decision tree theory, you've already gone a long way to being an incredibly successful manager or decision maker. And the thing is, is most people don't though. I, I don't remember which large tech company it was, um, or rather I think I do, but I'm not gonna uh, get it wrong. One of the things that they listen for in terms of what hobby or pastime their management recruit uh, is good at is uh, as follows. I want people who are good at bridge, not chess. And I love that. I love that because I, you know, I play chess. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of relearning it with my, with my kid right now. And it's a great, great game, right? Of course, so many possibilities. But the logic from this big tech company was people who play bridge understand how to see patterns and make decisions that will work out in certain circumstances and have the courage to make the right decision, even though it didn't work out. And the most classic example is the queen finesse. Any bridge players out there, um, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If there are uh, only two cards left in a suit and the queen could be on either side and you've got the, uh, let's say the king and the jack, do you take the finesse? And uh, the answer is yes, you do, because 55% of the time, It'll be on side with a, I think it's a 9-4 distribution, which happens a lot in bridge. You'll know it when you see it. Therefore, you take the finesse. And if the queen was on the wrong side, then you just shrug and say, at least I took the right decision. And, Interesting. And, and that's the kind of thing that this company was looking for. Someone who had the conviction to do what was right, asked the right questions, and uh, understood a very basic model, right? It's not that hard to figure out. You know, it's, it's kind of like splitting eights or rather than hitting on 16, right? That's fairly obvious, but just need to know that. It's been a fascinating discussion, Zia. Before we go, just to, to kind of wrap this up, last parting pieces of advice for leaders, for decision makers, that they can use to take some of the very complex ideas we've been talking about and put them into practice tomorrow. Great. Thanks for uh, the opportunity, Bryce. I've really enjoyed this podcast. I, I think it's been wide ranging and uh, hopefully uh, stimulating for some of the other listeners who aren't as interested in hockey. Um, but I'll go back to that, that one thing, which is, look, we can be pretty static with some of our decision-making processes. We have analyses and insights that we try to use on a day-to-day -day basis, and uh, we make a decision. And sometimes that decision changes, like Patton said, and sometimes it changes based on the context and the timing. Know that, think about it. Context really does matter. And so look for the situation that you might be in. Uh, there's an old expression that there's an expected value of perfect information, and it's great. You should keep seeking that perfect information about your market at that snapshot period of time. But know that the situations do change and the market is always dynamic. And then once you do that, if you can find a little air pocket of certainty, if you can get a bit of cover or if you could slant it one way, or if you notice an opportunity, take it, take it, 
hire Merrill Street, uh, change the volatility of the basket, but know that um, that decision is going to be already out of date in a few seconds. So you're going to constantly, constantly be looking, seeking uh, the right decision at the right time. Pull the goalie. Pull the goalie. I love it. See you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. To subscribe to Bryce's free newsletter, visit his website, brycehoffman.com. And don't forget to follow Bryce on social media. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bryce Hoffman, all one word. That's B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And to learn more about Bryce's company, Red Team Thinking, visit us at redteamthinking.com.